the 143rd Psalm. And I want to preach to you for a few moments this evening on this thought. Don't waste the valley that you're going through. You know, every one of us, we go through valleys in our lives. We go through low times and difficult periods and things that we did not ask for and things that we did not expect. And let me say that uh, the Lord often gives me a lot of good things that I have not asked for. Isn't that true? Somebody give me a witness there. A lot of good things I've not even asked Him for. But sometimes the Lord gives me grievous things that I've not asked Him for either. I know that all those things work together for good. The Word of God promises us that in the book of Romans. But I'm also equally aware that when you're in the midst of the valley, it doesn't seem like a real appealing place to be. And you know, one of the things the devil seeks to do is cause us to get distracted and to lose our wits and to cause us to fail and to faint in the midst of adversity. And I believe the psalmist gives us a good understanding of what the valley can mean in our lives and some things that will help us as we go through times as those. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. Lord, we thank you for this precious book that we hold in our hands infallible, inspired, inerrant, preserved, and perfect. Father, we know that as we approach this book tonight, there are no problems with it, and any problems there might be, there are problems in us. Father, help us to surrender to the truth of Your Word tonight. And Father, for it to be accomplished in us, to where it could be said that You've gained all the glory and we've been drawn closer to You. Father, we love You, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we read this psalm, it becomes immediately apparent that the psalmist is going through a time of difficulty. He talks about the darkness that he is dealing with, about feeling overwhelmed, about feeling desolate, about the uh, assault of the enemy that is upon him. In case you've not learned it yet, as you read the Word of God, there's a spiritual battle that takes place. Now listen, most Christians know that in theory. If you were to ask the average person that would walk through the doors of this church, do you believe in spiritual warfare? They know the right answer is to say yes. 
And yet we find that when we're in the midst of a spiritual battle, the chief thing that the devil would have us to believe is that we're not in the midst of a spiritual battle. The devil would have us to believe that it's merely misfortune, uh, that it's merely bad luck or coincidence. But if we could only see that in the spiritual realm that takes place around us, I think very quickly we'd realize that there's a battle day by day. And if you're saved, it's not a battle for your eternal soul, but it is a battle for your worthwhileness and your uh, efficiency and effectiveness for the cause of Christ. You know what the devil wants to do. He wants to get you in the valley and keep you in the valley. He wants you to get your eyes off of Jesus Christ and get them on yourself. He wants you to get to the place where you're like Elijah and you start planting juniper trees everywhere that you go and you just give up and throw your hands up and say, well, there's no purpose in serving God because things aren't going to get any better. If you're at that place tonight, understand you're right where the devil wants you to be. But that doesn't have to be the case in your life. Yes, we all go through valleys, but we have to believe that God has a purpose in those valleys, not just because it helps us to believe that, but by His very nature. His character dictates to us that everything He does, He does by design. A man a few years ago was going through cancer, and he wrote down some things concerning his experience with cancer and that which others would go through. And he titled it this, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Now, how many people going through cancer would ever look at it that way? But I want to read these to you tonight, and there's just a few of them. I've got seven written down here, and I'm going to substitute that phrase cancer for for the word valley. Because I believe this is true not just for those that are battling cancer or some other disease, but through any difficulty that we go through in life. And I want you to listen carefully to some of these that are written. Number one, you will waste your valley if you do not believe it was designed for you by God. It's not enough to say that God merely uses the disruptions of life. We must also acknowledge that He designs them just for us. If He doesn't stop it, then He has a purpose in it for us. Number two, you will waste your valley if you think it's a curse and not a gift. It's through what some call a curse that the faithful saint experiences the tender mercies and gracious ministries of the Lord. Number three, you'll waste your valley if you spend too much time reading about your valley and not enough time reading about Christ. Let me say it this way. You'll waste your valley if you spend too much time meditating on your valley and not enough time meditating on the Lord Jesus Christ and reading about Him. You see, one of the devil's chief tools is that of distraction. If he can get you focused on anything other than Christ, then he's one. Number four, you'll waste your valley if you allow it to drive you into solitude instead of allowing it to deepen your relationship with Christ and with others. You know there's such thing as mutual experience. If you've gone through something and somebody else has gone through it, you have something to talk about. Even the world knows there's something to be said for a support group. You and I, we've got the greatest support group there could ever be. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, He's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And we can come boldly unto Him. And then also through other believers that are around us. I I think you can spend a lot of wasted time trying to decide whether a church is too big or too little or needs to be bigger or needs to be smaller. But let me say one of the benefits to a church uh, that is smaller in capacity is there is a tight-knit community of those that are around you, people that love you and care for you, and people that you can confide in. 
Number five, you'll waste your valley if you grieve as those who have no hope. You know, me and you, we have hope. The Word of God tells us in the book of First Thessalonians chapter 4 that we're going to grieve, but we're not to grieve as others which have no hope. We're going to mourn. We're going to experience loss in this life that we live in. Anybody that told you you'd never have a hard time after you got saved, they lied to you. But we don't have to grieve as those that have no hope. Number six, you'll waste your valley if you treat sin as casually as you did before. If our difficult experiences do not give us a deeper hatred of sin, we've missed something. We've missed something. You know, every heartache in this world, in some degree, is the product of sin. The fact that we live in a sin-sick world. The fact that this earth is cursed. The fact that our bodies are cursed. The fact that mankind lives in a depraved state. We all do, every one of us. You say, but preacher, I've been born again. Yes, you've been born again. You have a new man within you. But that old man, he still likes to do what's wrong. And so as we experience valleys, it ought to help us to realize how painful sin is. Let me give you one more. Number seven, you'll waste your valley if you fail to use it as a means of witnessing to the glory and truth of Jesus Christ. You know, the greatest gift that we can be given through the midst of our difficulty... I'm not done preaching. Don't get excited. (laughs) That was just a little bit of an introduction. The greatest gift that we're given through the things that we endure is the open door to tell others about how Jesus Christ helped us. That's true of our sin-sick condition. We're all born sinners. And the greatest gift that we have is that we can never talk to a sinner, but what we can identify with the fact that we were also once a sinner. But that's true of the things we go through as well. Do you realize we live in a world that's hurting? We live in a world of tears and cursing and heartache and pain. And in the midst of that darkness, we have the ability to shine the light of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, I didn't ask for what I'm going through. You may not have. And there's probably somebody out there that's lost that didn't ask for it either. And maybe, just maybe, you could be the voice in the wilderness to that person to say, listen, you're going through what you're going through and there's nothing you can change about that. But let me tell you about somebody that will walk through it with you. Let me tell you about somebody that will never leave you nor forsake you. I think we need to work on not wasting the valleys that we go through. I want us to notice a few things in the 143rd Psalm, and I'm going to try to be quick because I don't usually give a real long introduction. Amen? I knew it would be quiet after I said that. That's good. You've got a good conscience about you. You can't amen something that's wrong. I want you to notice first off the pain in the valley that the psalmist speaks of. It's sort of peppered throughout this entire psalm, and such is the case. If your prayer life is anything like my prayer life, and I believe my prayer life, though it's not as as dedicated, and though maybe it's not as fruitful as David's was, I do believe it's just as human as David's was. And sometimes in my prayer life, I mean, I pray real good prayers. And then the next second, I mean, I pray real pitiful prayers. Are you like me? Sometimes I feel like, boy, I mean, that was beautiful. If, if they wrote them down in books, they'd write that one down. And then the very next moment I roll over and wallow in self-pity and ask God why He's doing to me what He's doing to me. And so in the 143rd Psalm, we have that represented to us because I believe that's a human quality. And the psalmist describes several things that he's going through. And maybe you can identify with them. At, at varying times in my life, I could. Listen to what it says in verse number 3. David says, For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. 
He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. The psalmist first mentions the pain of darkness. Now, what do we mean when we say darkness? We don't necessarily mean physical darkness, although that can be a very depressing atmosphere to dwell in. But I don't believe David's talking about physical darkness either. Rather, I believe he's talking about the darkness that is experienced by a person that does not understand the things that are taking place around them. David very much did not believe that he deserved to be the anointed king of Israel, but he very much knew he was the anointed king of Israel. And some of you can testify to that in your Christian walk. I know there's not a thing about me that deserves to be a child of God. But before I know anything else in my life, I know that I am a child of God by His grace and by His mercy. By the very same token, I I feel like Paul. I mean, it it blows my mind that he counted me worthy to place me in the ministry. I don't deserve to be a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But next to my salvation, there's nothing I know with more surety than the fact that God has called me to be a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I know that I know that I'm saved, and I know that I know that I know that I'm a preacher. But even in the midst of those times... Sometimes our common experience does not testify to those truths. David is the king of Israel, and yet he's a weak, though anointed king. David is the king of Israel, but his enemy is triumphing over him. David is the man whom Samuel came and broke uh, and and poured the oil uh, from the horn upon his head and declared him to be the king of Israel. We do not know when this is written in the life of David. He does not necessarily call himself the king in this passage. He simply calls himself the servant of the Lord. But you realize there was a pretty good period of time between when Samuel anointed him and when he first ascended the throne there in Judah. And during this period of time, he knows that God has called him. He knows that he He's the king of Judah and of Israel. He knows that Saul is not the man that's supposed to be on the throne. But still, day by day, he lives in the wilderness. He's a fugitive from Saul's vicious and murderous hand. And no doubt there were times when David said, I just don't understand what I'm going through. Now, you may be the type of person that always understands, but I'll go ahead and tell you that I'm the type of person that rarely understands. I don't always understand what God's doing, and He wouldn't be much of a God if I could figure Him out. There's times, I listen, I know, I understand that God watches over me, but still there's times that calamity happens. I, I know that the joy of the Lord is our strength, but there's times uh, when darkness wants to set in. And no doubt David thought within himself, I just don't understand what's taking place. You and I, we have the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. I know you can say amen to that. We have the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we understand that though our foe is a defeated foe, he has not yet been abolished and vanquished from our presence. It's interesting the way David says it. He does not say, for mine enemies hath persecuted my soul. He says, the enemy. I don't know who he's writing about. He may have been writing about Saul. This may be much later in his life. He could be writing about Absalom. He could be writing about any number of other people. There was always someone seeking to take the life of the king. But I do understand this, that though we may have a lot of enemies, quote-unquote, there is one enemy that we have. At the end of the day, I remember, and I've shared this with you before, but I remember talking with a group of people outside in the church. Probably I hadn't been pastoring here long, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't believe this, but occasionally there's drama in churches. I don't know if you knew that. We don't put it in the bulletin, but occasionally there is. And and we were talking about some things, and, 
And uh, people, you know, they was getting all lathered up and excited and everything. And, and I said, look, let me tell you something. Such and such person that, that we were discussing, I said, they're not the enemy. I said, I'm not, I'm not your enemy. Nobody in this church is your enemy. I said, we need to remember who the real enemy is. Now, I'm not advocating any kind of mushy kumbaya Christianity. But I'm just reminding you that there is an adversary that seeketh to destroy us. There is an enemy that we have. And he wants to destroy your life just as he wants to destroy my life. And we need to remember that. There's times when the enemy is oppressing and we cannot figure it out. and We cannot understand it. I believe darkness sometimes is a pain that we experience in the valley. Then look at verse number 4. He says this, Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. If you've studied your Bible any amount of time, really, if you're just a human being that lives and functions even in society today, you know what the word overwhelm means. It has the idea of drowning. Being whelmed over is what the scholars will tell us. That's real. I mean, you've got to really be smart to write some of these concordances, right? Uh, to be overwhelmed means to be whelmed over. I mean, if that's all it takes, I could do it. Amen. But the idea of drowning in your circumstances. You know, I believe darkness is one of the things the psalmist experienced, but I think depression is one of the things that the psalmist experienced. When I say depression, I don't mean sadness. I mean depression. There's a difference. If you've ever been depressed, you know there's a difference between sadness and depression. There's a lot of things that can make you sad. Your favorite sports team loses, that makes you sad. Somebody takes your parking spot, that makes you sad. But that is not what David is describing. He's literally describing a feeling of drowning in his own sorrow. And yet, notice what he says. He says, my heart within me is desolate. Isn't it interesting that in one brief verse, he describes the sensation of drowning and a desert in the same phrase. When we think of a desolate place, we think of a desert, don't we? A place where nothing grows. A place where there is no life. And what David is basically saying is that while I ought to be buoyant upon the experience of Christian joy, and if there's a desolate place in my life, I ought to be desolate of sin and unrighteousness. Rather, I'm drowning in my sorrow and I'm desolate. I'm empty of life. And it seems as though I am moving closer and closer to the edge. I believe sometimes, and listen, I don't, I don't know a lot about Depression, but I do understand this, that those that go through it, if you don't know what it's like, you might as well not try to help them. Amen? It's an experience wholly unto itself. Tell them you love them, tell them you're praying for them, but don't tell them you know what they're going through if you don't know what they're going through. David describes a depression, an overwhelming sorrow in his life. Look at verse number 7 with me. Not only darkness and depression... But he says in verse number 7, Hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit... What's his next word? Faileth. Faileth. He describes not only darkness and depression, but he describes despair. Now, what do we define despair as? Could I give it to you this way? Hopelessness. That's what despair is, isn't it? Being at the point of despair literally means all possible options have been vanquished. And there's nothing left to do. Literally, that word faileth, you know what it means? I'm going to blow your mind here. It means faileth. (laughs) Amen? It means to be at an end. It means to be at the end of your rope. If something fails, 
then it's it's done. It's it, it's over. If you've ever had, I'm not going to pick on different makes and models of cars. Everybody knows I drive a Ford, and I'm not going to say anything negative about Chevrolets. But uh, some of you and some of the vehicles you've had, you got to that place where it failed. And you knew when it failed. I mean, it didn't just die. It it died hard. Amen? And, I mean, smoke came out of places that smoke don't come out of, and noises that were unnatural that have never been known in human experience began to, to uh, utter forth from that vehicle, and you knew that thing was over. It wasn't a matter of jumping it off. It wasn't a matter of filling it up with gas. It wasn't a matter of tightening something up. It was dead. It was done. It was over. It was at the point of despair. There was nothing to be done to fix it. I've come across people in ministry that you could give them all the answers, but the answers didn't help anything. They were literally at a place where nothing could be said to them. I would say that in times like that, the Lord has to give the comfort that we need. Wouldn't you agree with that? There's times when all the what we might call cross-stitch answers, you know, old women used to, to, to stitch things onto, you know, things that hang on the wall and all these cute sayings. And they have a place and there's truth in them. But sometimes when a person is at the point of despair, all those little answers that are so cute and so concise and wrapped up with a bow on them, they just don't do the trick. And someone needs help from the Lord. I believe he describes the despair that he's going through. But not only does he describe some pain in the valley, I believe the psalmist points out some prizes that can be gained in the valley. You know, it's important that we make our valley count for something. But it's equally as important that we understand what can be gained through a valley experience. There are some things, there are certain flowers that grow in the valley that don't grow in the higher altitudes. There are certain treasures we can gain there that can't be gotten anywhere else. And there's some things that David mentions here that I believe we need to look for when we're going through difficult times. Let's look at verse number 2. Look what he says. He says, Enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. I think here he sort of hints at the prize of repentance in his own personal life. One of the things you'll soon find, and we uh, sort of are going to talk about it Sunday night, if the Lord will let us preach what he's been giving us so far for Sunday night. When the widow woman's son dies in 1 Kings chapter 17, do you remember the story I'm talking about? You know what she says, I mean, at the very beginning of it? She says to Elijah... Hast thou come here to bring my sins to remembrance before me? Now, you might believe this, you might not believe it, but not every difficult experience is chastisement from the Lord. There's times when what we're going through is not the result of the fact that we've sinned and we've messed up. But I believe when we enter a difficult time with the proper attitude, it'll be a time of self-examination. I believe when we go through valleys, it ought to be a time when we look at ourselves and say, Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked or unclean way within me. The first thing you ought to do when you come into difficult times, and this is true not only of difficult, you ought to do this on the mountaintop just like you ought to do it in the valley. But the valley has a way of forcing us into it where the mountaintop doesn't. You ought to begin to look at your own life and ask yourself, Lord, is there any way that I've that I've sinned? Is there anything at ought between me and thee? Is there anything in my life that I've elevated to a position above you? You say, but preacher, are you implying that, that I'm having a difficult time because I've sinned? No, I'm implying that you're a sinner like me. And we need off to do that. The old time preachers used to call it keeping a short account with God. 
and consistently going before him saying, Lord, you know our problem is we want to search ourselves. Let me tell you something. You won't, you won't thoroughly get right with God until you let God search you. As long as you're searching you, there'll be a few corners you won't sweep out. There'll be a few things you make excuses for. You say, preacher, how do I do that? How do I go about letting God search me? The same way David did. You pray and ask him to do it and be ready when he does. There might be some things that you say, oh, Lord, I didn't know you was going to mention that. (laughs) But that's all right, because that tells you that though he'll mention it, you never would have. And you ought to keep those short accounts. I believe the prize of repentance. Look at verse number 5. Notice what he says, the first two words. I remember. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I think the prize of repentance, but I think the prize of remembrance is a good thing we can gain when we go through difficult times. You know, we begin to appreciate things when they're not there. Somebody say amen to that. Has your air conditioner gone out any this year? You can double amen that then. I heard somebody just the other day said, I don't know how we used to live without air conditioning. And uh, used to everything had windows and was open. And, and if, uh, you know, and then if you made, you just make somebody mad, they'd spit on you. There's always something you could do to keep cool in them olden times. Now we don't have that, that privilege, amen. We're all too nice and polite and we all get along so well, right? You know, sometimes when something's gone, we begin to remember and think on it. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know that's true. Things that you couldn't, for if your life depended on it, you couldn't have remembered it before they were gone, but after they were gone, you remember every vivid detail. Maybe not about everything, but sometimes about the insignificant things that somehow emblazoned themselves upon your mind and your psyche. And there are certain things in those difficult times that we're able to think on and to remember. You know, sometimes when the blessing of God maybe is lifted a little bit from our life, we can remember just how good His blessings are. Sometimes when the peace of God is a little disrupted in our lives. I know if we just pray, it passeth all understanding. I'm aware of that. But sometimes I don't pray like I ought to. And sometimes I don't trust Him like I ought to. And sometimes I don't lean on Him like I ought to. And so sometimes my mind gets a little troubled and my heart gets a little worried. And sometimes the peace of God is maybe not as real as it ought to be if I was living for Him in a perfect manner. And in those times we can remember how God comforted us. And gave us strength. David says, you know, in the midst of this, I remember the days of old. We still say that. You know what we call them, right? The good old days. And he looks backward and he says, I remember those times. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. Let me give you a third thing. I believe the prize of remembrance and the prize of repentance, but I believe the prize of reliance is something we can gain in the valley. You never lean on God like you ought to until He's really all you've got. I'm not saying we need to sell everything we've got and and get rid of everybody that helps us in life and and go and live in isolation. I'm just merely saying this, that sometimes when we're propped up real good, we don't realize that His everlasting arms are underneath us. And the psalmist says this in verse number 6, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. Can I boil that down to one simple phrase? He's saying, Lord, I need you. I don't just want you. I need you. I'm afraid we live in a day of want Christianity instead of a day of need Christianity. 
I'm afraid that we have revival meetings because we want the Lord, not because we feel like we need the Lord. I'm afraid we come to church because we want the Lord, not because we really know that we need the Lord. You say, preacher, is there something wrong with wanting the Lord? No, not at all. But there is something wrong when we lose sight of the fact that we don't just want Him, we don't just love Him, we don't just like Him. We need God in our lives. We need Him. We need the prayer closet. We need the church house. We need the Word of God. We need the preaching of the Word of God. If you don't believe that, get away from it for a little while and you'll remember real quick. Oftentimes that is the danger. As folks get to the place where they see Christianity as a take-it-or-leave-it thing. And one of the difficult things as a pastor when you watch people go. I wish I could tell you you never have to watch people go, but I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. Is that you know how bad they need God. And they don't. When they get mad and get out of church when they allow something to become a distraction in their walk with the Lord, and all of a sudden, people that you'd see Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you start seeing them Sunday morning, Sunday night. And then Sunday morning. And then the occasional Sunday morning. And then just not at all. And the heartbreaking thing is not that you you see an empty pew, and the heartbreaking thing is not that their their tithe didn't go in the plate, and the heartbreaking thing is not that their job went undone, and the heartbreaking thing is not that the church's reputation is hurt or whatever people imagine it to be. The heartbreaking thing is that people need God in their life. They don't see that. They don't notice that. And it breaks your heart to watch them go. Well, sometimes in the midst of the valley, he quits being the spare tire. And He becomes our be-all, end-all, and our all-in-all. You see, the valley can give Him the preeminence. The valley can put Him where He needs to be. And He never looks higher on His throne than He does when we're in the lowest depths of the valley. I think there's some prizes to be gained in the valley. But I think there's a way out, don't you? We ought to believe there's a way out. My old preacher used to preach a message called The Way Out of the Mess That We're In. And it was really just a message on Jesus coming back. Amen. I I still believe He's really the only way for our country and for our our humanity and this world. I believe that's the only hope and the only help. I was talking to my wife the other day. You know, we were talking about uh, the the horse face guy that is in the Obama administration, the guy that was a hippie, John Kerry. And we were uh, we were talking about this Iran deal and everything. And uh, they asked him. They said, Mr. Kerry. They asked him in Congress. They said, How in how in the world is this not a treaty? What has taken place? You know, the Constitution has a provision that we can vote with the support of Congress to to institute treaties with other nations, but it has to meet with Congress's approval, which this Iran deal did not. And uh, they asked him. They said, uh, How is it that this is not a treaty? And this was his answer. He said, Well. Uh, gentlemen, in my experience, you can't get a treaty passed anymore. I, I, listen, I'm not a smart individual, and I confess to that openly. But I think I understand what he's saying. What he's saying is this. It's not a treaty. And I know it's not a treaty. And you know it's not a treaty. But I don't think you've got backbone enough to do anything about it. Isn't that what he's saying? And I looked at my wife, we were listening to that and talking about it, I looked at her, I said, you know, the scary thing is this, government, it is not within the mechanics of government, nor is it within the quote-unquote graces of the human spirit to, to give back and surrender power once it's been gotten. You understand that, right? I don't care if there's a donkey 
or an elephant in the White House. Nobody gives back power that's been given to them. And vote for who you want to vote for, and that's fine, and I appreciate that, and I'll vote too. But don't think for one minute they're ever going to give back power, because why would they? See, the only way out is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's going to fix it. Nothing's going to straighten it out. You say, preacher, that scares me. It ought not scare you. Our king's coming. It ought not scare you. Our king's coming back. He'll take care of things. It's not within human nature to do this. But I believe the individual valleys that we go through, I believe there is a way out of those. And here's the thing. You've got to do something while you're going through it, so why not do the right thing? Right? You've got to have an attitude. Why not have a good attitude? You've got to have a walk with the Lord. Why not have the right kind of walk with the Lord? You see, that's what it's about, not wasting your valley. Let me show you a few things that I believe help us in the midst of the valley. I believe, number one, praying and waiting is something we're going to have to do while we're in the valley. Now, you can't help but wait, because if you could do anything other than wait, you wouldn't wait. And I'm the same way. We get out of the valley. But what are we going to do while we're waiting? We ought to be praying. It's sort of, like I said at the beginning of the message, it's peppered through here, but I want you to notice some of these phrases. In verse number one, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness, answer me. And in thy righteousness. In verse number 6, he says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. That, that's prayer. You understand that? When a Hebrew man prayed, he'd pray with his hands lifted to heaven. And that's what he's talking about. Verse number 8, he says, Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. He's talking about prayer. Verse number 9, he says, I flee unto thee to hide me. He's talking about prayer. And in verses 11 and 12, we have an example of this prayer. He says, Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In verse number 11. I think prayer is something we ought to be doing while we're going through our experiences. So I don't feel like praying. Well, God didn't tell you to pray when you feel like it. He said pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you need to walk around all day doing nothing but prayer. You know what that means? Don't take a break from your prayer life. If you're having a good time, don't take a break from your prayer life. If you're having a bad time, don't take a break from your prayer life. If your relationships are blossoming, don't take a break from your prayer life. If your spouse walks out on you, don't take a break from your prayer life. Pray without ceasing. No matter what you're going through, you can always be praying. Say, preacher, I've been sick. Well, you may, you may be sick, but you can still pray. Preacher, my, I lost my job. You can still pray. Preacher, somebody hurt my feelings. You can still pray. No matter what's happening, you can be praying. Look at verse number 10. He says, teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Notice this. Thy spirit is good. Now, do you notice what we've read? If you really want to read into this whole psalm, you can find him praising the Lord all the way through it. But this is a snippet, just an example. A concentrated dose of praise is given in verse number 10. In this little phrase, four words, Thy Spirit is good. I think not only can we be praying, but we can be praising God and worshiping Him when we're in the midst of our valley. Let me tell you something. Just because things aren't going good, that doesn't mean God isn't still good. 
I know God will always be good, but if God quit being good to you today, you'd still never run out of things to praise Him for, for what He's done in your life. And if you lost your, if you fell, if somebody came along, hit you on the head, and you lost your memory and you couldn't remember a thing, you could start praising Him for what He's going to be doing for you, and you'd never run out of anything to praise Him for. And I bet you if we really tried our best, we couldn't even exhaust what He's done for us in this very day that we've lived, this Wednesday that has found us in the house of God tonight. We couldn't exhaust the praise that's due to His name. His name's exalted above all blessing and praise. And you say, I don't feel like it. Well, there again, the Bible says, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Not let everything that's in a good mood praise the Lord. Let everything that just got a new job or just had some kind of uh, financial windfall or, or, or things just started going real good, let them pray. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. The Bible says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's the will of God for you to praise Him. And then finally, and I'm done, I think the path of prayer and the path of praise, but I think the path of practice, or can I give you this word, our walk with the Lord, walking for Him. We're waiting, we're worshiping, but we're walking with Him. Look what he says in verse number 8. He says, Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. He says, Lord, I want to know how I'm supposed to walk in this valley that I'm going through. I want to know how I need to behave myself. David was a righteous man, wouldn't you say that? He's a man after God's own heart. Oh, I know he made mistakes, and you have too. But David was a man that knew how to behave himself wisely. But you know one thing David understood? There's always room for improvement. There's not a single person in this room that couldn't walk closer to God. I mean, me first and foremost. I, I mean, if there, uh, me before any of you, I know that I could be walking closer to God. I don't stand behind this pulpit because I've got it figured it out. I've got it figured out. I stand here because I can't figure it out. But I know that the Lord is doing a work in my life, and I trust He is in yours as well. You say, well, preacher, there's nothing glaring. Well, it doesn't have to be anything glaring. You remember what was written in the book of Song of Solomon, that the little foxes spoil the vine? It don't have to be a big idol. It can be a small idol. It doesn't have to be a big mistake. It can be a small mistake. It doesn't have to be a sin that society would recoil at because all sin is offensive to God. The question is, are you humble enough to ask God to examine your life? Are you humble enough to ask God to show you how you need to walk? We all need a dose of humility, don't you think? Every one of us. We all think we've got it figured out. And yet we all think it could be going better. What does that tell you? Something, we've got a misfire somewhere, amen? So the question is, in the midst of this time, and I don't know what you're going through. There may be people in this room who aren't going through a valley. I guarantee there's people that probably are. But whatever your experience, you know this to be true. It's, I mean, it's, so, it's been said so much that, that it's almost a cliche that we're all either in a storm, uh, just come out of one, or just going into one. We understand that. And so, if you'd say, Preacher, I, I don't know that this was for me tonight. Know that it may not be for you tonight, but it may be for you tomorrow or the day after 
or the day after and take it as preventive medicine from the Lord. And if that is you going through that valley, then make a commitment tonight that you're not going to waste it. You're not just going to wallow in self-pity until the clock runs out, but you're going to make it count for the Lord Jesus Christ.